Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or, to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. No fantastical pop culture creation, or franchise, if we must call it that, has lasted without at least an attempt at greater meaning behind its superficial appeal of swords or spaceships. Star Trek has never been shy about being about something, and in fact it's probably one of the few major science fiction properties to advertise itself that way right from up front. But for all its high-mindedness, Trek is still owned by a corporation, and at the end of the day, it keeps going because it makes money. The ship is called Enterprise, after all. Trek's never been as massively popular as Star Wars with the various superhero characters. The fact that the show struggled as a niche item for decades, kept alive by a passionate fan base, helped to mold it into something quirky, often unpolished, and frequently flat-out rejected by the mainstream. At the risk of sounding like a hipster, it's the weirder, less appealing corners of Trek I'm most often drawn to personally. The stuff that mass audiences are never going to enjoy as much as space battles and lightsaber fights, but which I think adds more depth and provides a lot more fodder for discussion, even when the results are awkward, silly, or just plain bad. This is something that the people who try to make money off Star Trek have struggled to engage with, and in this episode we'll be taking a look at this side of Star Trek. I am uh, Adam Prosser, with me as always is Douglas McDonald-Norman. G'day. <laughs> Sorry, I introduced you. I, I jumped in. I took over your uh, your introduction. That's okay. I know who I am. <laughs> if you haven't, there's three whole episodes on this. So uh, he's a mysterious figure from uh, Australia. Um, but uh, if you... Uh, yeah, w today we're just going to look uh, specifically at the, uh, the commercial side of Star Trek. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an onion gag... Uh, that I thought was really entertaining that came out at the uh, right when um, uh, the J.J. Abrams movie, the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie that was just called Star Trek, uh, hit theaters. Uh, there was an onion, it was actually a video uh, titled uh, Trek Fans Lambast New Movie as Fun Watchable. Um, and that, <laughs> that, that says a lot. About Star, that was that was a that was a dagger to the heart, frankly, as a Star Trek fan, because it is a hundred percent dead on. Um, Trek is not always fun and watchable to a large contingent of the viewing audience, and um, it's not hard to see why it's not as always as popular as some of the other science fiction franchises. But at the same time, as I mentioned in the last episode, I think that's one of the things that makes it so uh, beloved by a smaller fan base and how passionate they are about it because it's this weird thing that isn't for everyone. Uh, and yet because it keeps going and because the brand name of Star Trek is so powerful, uh, it does need to be for larger and larger audiences or so the people who control the brand of Star Trek think, um, no matter how hard it tries, it's never going to be cool. And that's what I personally love about it. But of course, Trek has been, flirting with being cool at various points in its history, and arguably we're in one of those periods right now. Uh, what do you think, Douglas? I th have been consistently surprised throughout my life of how many otherwise normal people like Star Trek. Certainly for me, going to work every day on a the, in the legal district of Sydney and seeing a big bus station ad for Picard Right where normal people can see it, with a picture of seven and nine, on the assumption that normal people will know who she is, <laughs> fundamentally threatened all of my assumptions about how niche this hobby was, and really reaffirmed that Star Trek, for all that it has a passionate core base of fans, is a show that has a much broader periphery of people who might not know 
precisely the difference between Dagger of the Mind and the Corbomite Maneuver, but who like the show, who watch it casually, and who feel some sense of identification with it. So I think that Star Trek at the moment is in pretty good straits in terms of the breadth of the people who like it, in terms of the breadth of the people who are watching it, and crucially in terms of getting new fans in rather than just having an aging core talking about a show from decades ago. One of the things, just before we move on into our main substance, one of the things that I've really, really liked about Discovery has been seeing young fans online again, people for whose point of entry into Star Trek has been Discovery, who are as engaged in Stamets and Colbert and Saru in the way that the people who we grew up watching on Next Gen and DS9 were totemic figures for us. For a long time, Star Trek felt like a show that was resting upon past glories, that it was going to be the same narrow cadre of us just talking to each other and having the same arguments again and again until we died. But the fact that you have younger people coming into the fan base, restoring some of the vitality and diversity that has been characteristic of the franchise at its most exciting moments, like the 1970s, is a cause for enormous optimism on my part. Yeah, uh, it, it's. I feel like right now, at this particular moment, which as we're recording this, it's right, right at the tail end of uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 3, uh, Lower Decks aired uh, a, few, a month or two ago, um, and we had the first season of Picard earlier in 2019. I think we're in the sweet spot uh, for Star Trek, which is to say, um, or the, for what for me is the sweet spot for any franchise, which is it's popular enough that it's got momentum and it's got people interested in it and it's going to continue to have a certain amount of creative freedom, but it's not so popular that it's become this... Um, uh, formula that uh, that generates money and that can never be deviated from. Um, and that was actually something uh, Star Trek did operate in for a lot of its history. Arguably, uh, the years, the, you know, the seventies era that we talked about in terms of uh, spinoffs, novels, comics, and so on. Um, to a certain extent, the movies, although the movies are expected to be big blockbusters, so. Not as much. And then Next Generation, once it got going, after the initial sort of thrill ward off, uh, it was popular enough that people kept tuning in, but they were also, they weren't on the cutting edge of culture. So they were able to build their own little fiefdom, uh, and especially with Deep Space Nine, where they could do what they needed to do, uh, but also be left alone to a certain extent. It was kind of like, here's the money every month now go away and let us do <laughs> this kind of stories we're interested in. And they weren't being told, you know, ah, oh, you gotta, hey, you know what, kids today, they like the, you know, the vampires. Can you get a vampire on Star Trek kind of thing? You're like, you, you don't have that, uh, you, di you, you didn't tend to have that commercial uh, uh, interruption, those, those studio notes um, in the Berman era, from what I could tell. I mean, you had the notes from Berman himself uh, and from some of the actual people who were specifically overseeing the franchise, but you didn't have uh, a lot of people who didn't have a personal attachment to the franchise come storming in. Uh, that changed with J.J. Abrams, um, and as I mentioned in the last episode, Abrams has been pretty upfront about not not getting Star Trek, as he puts it. I don't think there's much to get. I think it's just that he's not... He wasn't that enthusiastic about it. He just was enthusiastic about helming a sci-fi franchise. Um, you know, I don't want to dump too hard on Abrams here, uh, but his version of Trek is not my favorite. Uh, but, you know, he seems like a nice, enthusiastic guy. He's just not the guy who likes uh, to make, who's, who's good at making Star Trek, and it's not surprising he moved on pretty quickly as soon as he got a chance. Um, and then uh, you have Kurtzman, who's... Uh, Alex Kurtzman, who's the guy who's been overseeing... Uh, the franchise on TV since it's gone back, who, from what I can understand, is a very passionate Star Trek fan. Um, but, um, again, you you have the needs of Star Trek right now where it is a, uh, a flagship show, and now several flagship shows, for CBS All Access, the CBS streaming site. And um, we're in a tumultuous time for... <laughs> for, for 
media properties where uh, everyone's trying to launch their own streaming site. They need content. They need that sweet, sweet content. And CBS needs that sweet, sweet Star Trek content to stay alive, uh, much as uh, the Paramount Network needed Voyager back in the day. Um, so it's got a certain level of importance, but at the same time, nobody's thinking of CBS All Access as uh, a massive competitor for Netflix or Amazon Prime. So, again, we may be in the sweet spot, but we may also get to the point, as particular now, now that there's going to be like seven Star Trek shows on the air all at once, uh, we may get to the point where maybe concer commercial concerns start to get in the way of what Star Trek could do. Um, I, think we've, I think we've hit the sweet spot, but we'll see where we are going forward. Um, and, of course, this is something Star Trek has struggled with uh, a lot in the past. I agree. I think we're in a honeymoon at the moment where the fact that there is new Star Trek being produced on a weekly basis after so long insulates the show from a lot of the pressures that would otherwise apply to a TV show in the abstract. I mean, an enormous part of the audience for Picard did tuned in because it was Jean-Luc Picard on a weekly TV show. I think a significant part of the audience, as much as it's really enthused me that there are Discovery fans who've come to Star Trek as Discovery fans, first and foremost, there's also a significant part of the audience for whom it is the new Star Trek show. As the market gets increasingly saturated and as you can increasingly rely less and less on, I suppose, that honeymoon of it's a new Star Trek show, I think there will be much more of a culling and there will be much more pressure to compete. That said, I think it's interesting that you bring up the notion that Disco is the flagship for CBS All Access because obviously Star Trek's previous example of being a flagship is Voyager's role in launching UPN back in the 1990s. For those in the audience unfamiliar, Next Generation and DS9 aired on syndication. That is, they were not necessarily tied to a particular network, but they were retailed across the American TV, uh, the wide array of American local and regional TV stations. This is completely unfamiliar to me because Australian TV doesn't function at all like that. Everything I know about how American TV is set up comes exclusively through Star Trek. So if I do get stuff wrong, we can just chalk it up as a continuity error. Um, but whereas DS9 and TNG aired in syndication and hence enjoyed freedom from a given network but were subject to the vicissitudes of scheduling at individual local and regional TV shows, stations across the United States, Voyager was tied to a particular network. And if anything, that seems to have made for a more unhappy experience and more creative constraints than they necessarily would have faced in syndication. Now, in some circumstances, this seems to have been relatively harmless. There's the episode Sunkatse from season six, in which Seven fights the rock. While that resurfaces every year or so as Star Trek fans around the world marvel at the fact that that actually happened in a TV show. It's not of itself doing any real violence to Voyager or to Star Trek for Seven to fight the Rock once in a while. But if Star Trek is required to serve as the anchor of a major commercial TV station like UPN, it inevitably carries with it a risk of greater conservatism, greater caution, and a greater reliance upon formula, which arguably is exactly what Voyager exhibited. Adam, do you think that being UPN's flagship was ultimately detrimental to Voyager creatively? Um, I don't know if it was that was the only reason, but there was very clearly a desire with Voyager uh, there, there were forces acting on Voyager that wanted to turn it into the Next Generation Part Two, um, in a way that did not mesh with what the premise of the show was supposed to be. I think, uh, you know, uh, when you look at Deep Space Nine, uh, and it's it's hard to remember this at the time. Deep Space Nine was considered the lesser of the three overlapping Star Trek properties. Uh, it was the one that. Berman and, and Pillar and those guys didn't seem to have as much interest in uh, because they kind of went, okay, well, that's it was Next Generation. 
Deep Space Nine was their big thing for a, a couple years, but once Next Generation ended, they kind of jumped to Voyager. It became the flagship, as you say, and it was the uh, it was the show that I think everyone wanted to get on. Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of what was happening behind the scenes on Voyager, uh, but it definitely get you definitely get the impression that because it had more cooks, uh, that's what uh, hurt it a little more. Even though it was the much more popular show in the ratings, from what I understand. Uh, it was huge. Next Generation was huge and Voyager was huge. Deep Space Nine was kind of in the middle, but it was able to kind of putter along in the background. And then eventually people kind of came around and sort of rediscovered it and went, hey, this show is great. It was, you know, everyone was focused on Voyager at the time, but this this is the really cool one. You could argue that was the, the one for, uh, within the sphere of Star Trek, it was the Star Trek show for Star Trek nerds, <laughs> and Voyager was the show that was reaching more of a mass audience, potentially. Uh, and I think that's borne out by the fact that Voyager had big guest stars. You mentioned The Rock already, but they had Jason Alexander. While Seinfeld was on the air, they had Jason Alexander on uh, Voyager. They had Sarah Silverman, who was fairly big at the time. Uh, they had uh, Scott Thompson at one point. Um, they've had a, a number of other big guest stars. You know, other than Iggy Pop, I guess, Deep Space Nine did not really get the big guest star. And I, depending on how big you think Jeffrey Combs is, but he was uh, he was basically a regular, <laughs> too. Um, uh, but uh, it, it was it was very clearly one was the little quirky cult show, even within the quirky cult sphere of Trek, and one was the uh, the one that was the big success. And I, yeah, I definitely think that right from the start, uh, Voyager kind of betrayed its premise because it was so intent on going, oh yeah, yeah, we're next generation. Guys, you know next generation? Well, here's seven more years of next generation. Uh, and, and I think you can't do that. You can't, <laughs> you can't just say, oh yeah, here's more of the same thing, even though we were promising you something different a moment ago. And people got that. And that's kind of why they, you can, even though Voyager was popular, you can see them reorienting themselves with, for instance, bringing in Seven of Nine, which ironically, this very nakedly pandering, so to speak, uh, <laughs> move of bringing in, uh, the sexy dame, uh, was one of their best creative decisions because she ends up being one of the best characters on the show. Um, but you can see those commercial forces acting on Voyager very heavily in a way I don't think they were acting as much on Deep Space Nine. I know, I know there's one or two I, places on Deep Space Nine where where there was a you know a, a, a an executive insistent on something or they were trying to cash in on some trend, but I can't think of them offhand. If they existed, they were very well, well integrated with the show. Uh, but whereas with Voyager, it's a little more obvious what they're trying to do the whole time, <laughs> as it were. Well, I think with DS9, one of the key examples is the, is the introduction of Worf and the Klingons. I think I don't think there's enormous consensus as to whether the network said you need to do this, but there was a sense that as TNG was ending, introducing a popular character from TNG and a change the show's universe to suit to take account of that was a way of boosting the show's stature. And obviously that ultimately worked well for the show, albeit being a fairly lengthy detour from what they wanted to do. On that note, I think the revitalization of DS9 in terms of its critical standing in recent decades and the comparative decline of Voyager's standing is really interesting because when we talk about commercial success, we're also partially talking about a story of technology. So it was basically impossible to watch Star Trek on TV when I was growing up. It aired at about 1am on a commercial TV station, at, sort of behind a locked door saying beware of the leopard. So by and large, I watched Star Trek on VCR. And we would go to Blockbuster and they would have a selection of Star Trek episodes. They wouldn't necessarily be in order. They wouldn't necessarily be exhaustive. And you would pick up whichever Star Trek, whichever two episodes were on, whichever VCR tapes were there. And Voyager really was perfectly geared to be viewed in an environment in which a significant part of the audience was picking up VCRs from a blockbuster in country New South Wales. It didn't really matter where they came from. It didn't matter where they aired in a particular point in the show's order. You could pick up a Voyager video and you would take it home and you would watch it with your family and whatever level of engagement they had with the show or with the franchise, they would be able to extract something from it. DS9's revitalization, by contrast, has owed an enormous amount to 
the rise of DVD box sets, which makes it a lot easier to follow a season through from beginning to end, and especially to the rise of streaming, which is really ideally the way in which DS9 ought to be viewed, one after another. Whereas Voyager is a very difficult show to stream, partially because there's not much continuity from episode to episode, but also because the essential sameness of so many of the episodes, which makes it so well suited to casual viewers and makes it so well suited to the needs of conservative TV production, make it quite wearying to stream episode on episode on episode because you have basically seen this before. So... It's not so much that Voyager has aged poorly in a vacuum, or that DS9 made wise choices that have been borne out by history. It's simply that technology has moved in a direction where DS9 is a lot easier to watch than it used to be, and you can't really watch Voyager in the way in which it was meant to be produced, which is either 42 minutes a week, or as much as you can get from a blockbuster in country New South Wales. <laughs> yes, um... That is, I think, the, uh, you've brought up a very crucial point here. Uh, the years, the Berman era, the era of Next Generation through to Enterprise, let's say, uh, 1987 to 2005, um, that is one of the most tumultuous... Uh, we, we talked last episode how it wasn't a very tumultuous time for history up until 9-11, but it was a very tumultuous time for pop culture, and especially for television. And it's very interesting that Star Trek existed as you saw uh, this tremendous shift away from what television had been for the first 30 to 40 years of its existence into something very different and closer to what we know of it today. And one of the big things was that as the 90s progressed, um, you had a shift away from uh, very much standalone episodes, very much, as you say, sameness, repetitiveness, uh, the idea that I'm going to check on my pals on TV show X every week, uh, and which was particularly geared towards syndication, because syndication is meant to be aired uh, in blocks. You know, it's not necessarily a huge event when the new episode airs in syndication. It's, oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, they're airing another episode of Star Trek to fill in the gap between, you know, 11 and midnight or whatever on the sci-fi channel. It's, uh, it, it was, you know, other shows had done more serialization in the eighties, especially you started to see more serialized, uh, primetime shows, uh, something like Twin Peaks. And of course, soap operas had always had serialization, but the nineties is when genre shows really started to lean into the idea of serialization and the idea of, um, okay, well, what happened last week is now going to feed into this week's episode, and there's going to be an ongoing arc, and characters are going to evolve in ways that we're actually really carefully tracking, and that will be planned out in a way, and that will color their movement going forward. And you're watching a long-form drama. And I always like to say, when people, people complain about how serialized TV shows are these days, and I don't disagree, I think there's a really heavy emphasis on uh, TV shows these days where it's like I'm watching chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and it can get a little bit draggy. But I think it's important to remember um, sometime around early the early 90s, the very beginning of the 1990s, how frustrating it could be to watch a show, especially a science fiction or fantasy show, and just have the characters just pretend like nothing happened last week and that we, we were just reborn again in the light of the cathode ray tube <laughs> out of nowhere and let's just forget everything that happened. Or maybe we'll make a passing allusion to something that happened. And if there's any continuity, if there's any development, it kind of slowly sneaks up on you by the fact that the, the actor has made a cumulative series of choices and, oh yeah, we're used to you know something that happened in season three and that's how we think of the character. Stuff like that. Um, so it really was a huge progression for television to start treating it in a bit more of a serialized fashion. Um, and what's ironic is that I think the forces of commercialization resisted that very heavily 
throughout the 90s. Um, I think that for the, for the reason that syndication existed, syndicated shows wanted a show that you could just drop an hour of at a gif- at a given moment and not have to care too much about oh what what season is this again oh, what was happening oh was that character did that character die at this point oh, oh was it had they betrayed them had they become evil or you know like nothing you, you didn't want to keep track of it you just wanted to see another visit to the enterprise d and captain picard and everything would be roughly the way it had been before with the occasional episode that would allude to something that happened in the past um deep space 9 became heavily serialized but Voyager resisted it very hard, and again, that may have helped explain its success at the time, but it's also explained why it hasn't lasted as long. And then, of course, Enterprise started to deal with uh, the idea of serialization. Um, so you had this real tension playing out across those four Star Trek shows of, are we going to be serialized or are we not going to be serialized? And making choices based on that, which I find really interesting. I completely agree. I think Star Trek's long journey towards civilization is really the story of the late 90s and the early 2000s in the show and is a really important part of its journey towards cancellation. Because that resistance to serialization until the last two seasons of Enterprise, even if you did have some recurring characters, even if you did have some potential seeds being laid towards future stories, that reliance upon formula, that reliance upon self-contained episodes is a big part of how conservative the show had become by the first two seasons of Enterprise. And I'm not speaking conservative in a political sense, I'm speaking in the sense that they thought that the audience could only stomach 42 minutes of a basically Star Trek-shaped product without an enormous degree of deviation from the margins. Now, I'm... Look... Like you, I am an enormous fan of Deep Space Nine, and some of its greatest moments come from serialization. Even, but I think it's really, to a certain extent, partially a question of finding a happy medium. On one hand, part of the fact that DS Nine's greatest hours hit with the force that they do comes from the fact that they build upon what has gone before, that they are part of ongoing relationships between characters, between civilizations, between the different parts of the universe. But that doesn't mean that each episode needs to be, you know, the next chapter in a book, or needs to be incapable of being taken on its own merits. To my mind, the greatest episode of Enterprise, the the greatest Star Trek episode of all time is The Visitor in Deep Space Nine Season 4, which is an episode that is devastating when taken in its own right but which derives so much of its force because we as an audience have know and understand Jake's relationship with Ben Sisko that we have seen it evolve we have seen the two of them grow together that we're not simply watching a father and a son in abstract but we are watching characters who not only who we know but to whom we can bring this history and where the characters are interacting in light of this history So Star Trek has had a really unhappy journey in trying to balance, on one hand, the extreme of self-contained episodes accessible to absolutely anyone, and in some cases, which are accessible regardless of whether you're paying attention or not, and completely serialized episodes, which really assume that you're interested in the entire story, and if you're not, then that which are entirely unsatisfactory on their own terms. And I think what we see with Enterprise is two seasons of more or less self-contained episodes which are ultimately unfulfilling, a more or less a mostly serialized season in which most the in which a lot of the individual episodes don't stand on their own merits but really only derive their force from the greater arc and an attempt in the fourth season to attempt to marry the two with some creative success but ultimately too late because the audience had moved on but you know it's in some ways it's not at all surprising uh, that um star trek would embrace would resist the serialized model because after all the thing that had made star trek popular in the first place uh way back in the in the well 70s is the fact that it was it became such a staple syndication and that's where star trek's success came from and it's not it's not at all surprising that when you get to the era of Star Trek Next Generation, 
it was launched as a syndicated TV show. And it is actually significant that uh, syndicated TV exploded in the 90s, and it was very much because of Next Generation, as popular as it was. It was not uh, seen as a very classy form of television to make a syndicated TV show. Uh, and even when it was on the air, Next Generation, one of the reasons Next Generation never got quite as much mainstream appeal, uh, mainstream attention as it could have, is probably because uh, syndication was not prestigious. It was not, you know, it was network television that got all the attention and the Emmys, even though Next Generation did win an Emmy or two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Next Generation, you know, that was this whole weird little ecosystem. And there's a ton of other shows. I, I think we're actually going to do an episode about that to a certain degree and some of the, the Star Trek knockoffs that are out there and so on. But, um, there's an entire 90s ecosystem of, especially science fiction and fantasy shows, that would not have existed without uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Um, and it, it really did uh, break through the barriers of syndication. But that only happened because uh, of what happened with the original show. And of course, as we, as we mentioned back, I think, in the first episode, um, Star Trek went two seasons, almost got cancelled. And it, it's, by the way, it's worth noting that uh, we talk about Voyager as being kind of the uh, the uh, the the crucial flagship of the Paramount Network, which it was. But it's also worth noting that back in the '60s, um, the original Star Trek was uh, the horse that Desilu Studios was betting on. That and Mission Impossible; uh, those were the two shows that they were they had made and said, "We're going to launch these shows, and that's going to make us as a studio." Uh, or or reestablish us as a studio because they'd had a, a, a sideline in comedy. Of course, they made I Love Lucy uh, back in the fifties. Um, this was their attempt to sort of really break out and 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 develop a line of hits. Um, and unfortunately, it came a little too late to save the studio, as I understand it. Um, I, the way I'd heard it, if uh, Lucille Ball was personally pumping money into Star Trek and Mission Impossible. Uh, she really believed in them. She really thought those were going to be very popular shows. And she was right. But unfortunately, she ran out of money to keep them going uh, just in time for uh, the studio to fold, to be bought by Paramount, and um, for Paramount to make all the money from syndicating Star Trek, unfortunately. So if somebody had loaned Lucille Ball uh, a million bucks or so in 1969, we might have potentially gotten a fourth season of Star Trek. Uh, we might have, and certainly Desilu Studios might have survived and have become uh, the basis for um, uh, for who knows what else. But also, you know, the syndication money that made Star Trek what it was would have flowed in a very different direction, and Star Trek probably would have taken another form. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten another season, but we certainly uh, it, it, the the history would have shaped, shaken out differently from that from there. Maybe it would have been more in the hands of people who personally believed in it. Maybe that's a stretch. I don't know. Uh, but certainly um, it, it's significant to note that that whole aspect of Trek was shaped by the commercialization of uh, Desilu Studios at that time. I just going back to what you've said about the success of TNG and the extent to which it inspired knockoffs. I think that's a really important point because... We can't separate how well Star Trek did under Next Gen from its ultimate cancellation under Enterprise. The fact that Star Trek became as creatively cautious as it did wasn't purely because it was being made by cautious people. It was because those were people... You had a relatively stable production core of people who, like Rick Berman and Brennan Braga, had worked on Next Generation, who'd gone on to work on Voyager, who'd gone on to work on Enterprise, for whom a particular formula of making Star Trek was something that they had been doing for a very long time. And the fact that Star Trek, that a particular format which had worked enormously well in a different TV broadcasting environment in the 1990s, was ultimately incapable of meeting new audiences in the 2000s, doesn't say anything that that model was unsuited to next gen or that it was not the right thing for that particular commercial climate. It's simply that there wasn't an audience in 2005 for a Star Trek show that still owed an enormous amount to the nature of TV production in 1987. And that actually bears upon the other thing that you've mentioned, which is how influential Next Gen was. And as you've said, we'll talk about that in a future episode, but 
A lot of the basic building blocks of the space opera genre in the 90s and 2000s and all of the shows inspired by or responding to Star Trek are working within formulae and conventions that were in large part codified by Next Gen. It, the fact that they departed from that formula doesn't say that it was a bad formula. It says how influential it was, that the audience could be expected to understand this is what a TV science fiction show looks like. Part of the difficulty that Enterprise faced wasn't that it was effectively that other shows had taken the next generation model, had adapted on it, had innovated, had shown the new things you could do with science fiction television in the 21st century, and Enterprise didn't. If anything, it was outcompeted in terms of winning the affection of fans and in terms of showing what TV could do by other shows that were also successes to Next Generation. It was eaten alive by its siblings, if you will. Yeah, and it's and that it's you know it is funny to me though that Enterprise uh, was of course as I say on the air. It was literally the first. Uh, I think you could literally say it was the first science fiction show to be post nine eleven in the sense that it was launched as we said right after nine eleven, and that was of course not intentional. Uh, but it is actually interesting to me when you look at Enterprise and. Um, they did, in a very strange way, hit some of the beats that other science fiction shows would hit after Enterprise went off the air. In particular, there's a weird similarity in through a sort of backwards, upside down, and uh, sopping wet way <laughs> of what Battlestar Galactica did. Battlestar Galactica famously, you know, it was made by Ron Moore, who had worked on Deep Space Nine and, to a certain extent, Voyager and Next Generation. He'd worked on all three shows. Um, and you can see how a lot of D uh, Battlestar Galactica was coming from his frustrations with what he wasn't able to do on, especially Voyager, but also Deep Space Nine. Like, the, there's so much of uh, Battlestar Galactica... I'm talking here, of course, about the 2000s show, not the original 70s show. But there's so much of uh, the, you know, the good one. Uh, there's so much of Battlestar Galactica that you can see has its roots in Deep Space Nine with something like the Founders who are, uh, you know, who who are uh, infiltrating the society. But just the fact that it's a desperate uh, quest across the galaxy with people who are having to make hard decisions to survive, which is exactly what Voyager was not. Uh, but in a strange way, Enterprise got there too, because Enterprise had a few episodes, especially in the third season, that definitely feel like a bit of a dry run for a very, you know, a very awkward dry run for Battlestar Galactica. In particular, there's uh, one episode, The Hatchery. Okay, so yeah, the episode Hatchery, um, in a bizarre way, because it's the episode where um, there's a mutiny among the Enterprise crew, uh, because uh, Archer wants to look after uh, the enemy babies, <laughs> essentially. And in an extremely weird, dumb, backward way, it kind of feels like Battlestar Galactica when you're watching it. And this is a couple of years before Battlestar Galactica. Um, again, so I, I've sort of gone off on a riff about Battlestar Galactica, but it is funny how you can see that certain ideas that would work much better in the next 10 years were being tried out in a weird way on Enterprise. Not, not that that's the, what they knew what they were doing at the time, but you could argue that for all of Enterprise's awkwardness and inability to cope with the post-9-11 era, they did things as a dry run so that other shows could say, okay, let's not do that, <laughs> and let's do this instead. And that includes modern Star Trek, something like Discovery. Uh, th as we said in the last episode, it let them sort of say, you know what, Star Trek needs to be this, and they've only learned that because we did several years of this other Star Trek that wasn't really working out. Um, speaking of which, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, Star Trek as movies, because when you think about it, it is really weird that Star Trek has been movies. Uh, other than, you know, the cold, hard logic of capitalism. Um, because, of course, Star Trek almost wasn't a movie back in 19, uh, late 1970s. They, as we, as we discussed, they were going to launch Star Trek Phase Two, the TV show, and it got uh, spun around and became uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture instead. 
but it was it, it was a very near miss that we didn't just get another Star Trek show and instead got uh, Star Trek the motion picture. I think that's right. It's it's actually really interesting just picking up on what you've said, to see how many of the ideas that Enterprise tried were ultimately achieved with far greater success by the movies, um, spe- which, of course, speaks mm-hmm. to whether movies are the right way of achieving some of these ideas. With Enterprise, you do they are trying to make a younger, more accessible cast, um, taking away some of the certainties and technological innovations of the next-gen era, they are trying to create something that's a little bit more grounded in contemporary fashion and culture. People drive cars. People have pockets on their uniforms. Um, a lot of the attempts that Enterprise did to take some of the gloss off Star Trek and to make it more recognisable as our future rather than just the past of the other TV shows are things that aesthetically and dramatically the Abrams movies also picked up on as well. And that speaks to part of the difficulty that movies faced, which is obviously that whereas a TV show can, in some cases, subsist on the basis of a hardcore of loyal fans, movies need a broader audience. They need ultimately to be accessible to people who are watching them first and foremost as movies and not as Star Trek. I agree that it's weird that a show which is as cerebral as Star Trek often is also has this sideline of producing big, loud, bold movies for an audience that's not enormously invested in Star Trek. But I think that the two really, as we've said in the last episode, go hand in hand. The fact that Next Gen survived as long as it did was in part because of the audience that had been built up by the original four original series movies, which had brought new people to the franchise and encouraged at least some goodwill. Similarly, I think the fact that Discovery has done as well as it has owes something to at least the fact that some new people have been brought to the franchise or that it's been proven to be a viable commercial entity by the three modern movies. If anything, you can sort of view it as the movies are the rainmaker for the rest of Star Trek. They provide a commercial base or a flow of new fans who can ultimately be solidified and whose loyalty to the franchise can grow through the TV series as a whole. That's probably a bit unpalatable for a lot of hardcore fans because we see the TV series as being what Star Trek is and the movies as being, in one way or another, a deviation from that. But the movies are probably an important part of why this show works in a pure bottom-line commercial sense. Yeah, I, I, although I think it is also worth noting that um, every era of the movies <laughs> has probably kicked off with someone in Hollywood seeing dollar signs in their eyes and going, Star Trek, a movie, everyone loves Star Trek. I, I've never seen it, but I know people love Star Trek. My imaginative, my imaginary uh, Hollywood executive here, uh, going, uh, you know, I so do we like can make... your imaginary Hollywood executive. <laughs> yeah, he, but but probably going, oh yeah, wow. I mean, certainly in 1978, they went, oh, you know, uh, science fiction's big now. Star Wars happened. Uh, of course, it was a decade since 2001: Space Odyssey, but still, they, this was kind of the second thing. And it, oh, everyone's going to be rushing to do all this nerd stuff. Um, so they probably figured it would be this huge, uh, uh, cash-in, and certainly they sunk a lot of money into Star Trek The Motion Picture, which did not pay off, it wasn't a huge success, it, it did okay, and that's been the story of the Star Trek movies, they do okay, they never set the box office on fire, I believe to this day, if you adjust, uh, the box office, the most successful Star Trek movie is number four, which possibly significantly is set mostly in the modern day uh, and, pro- and s- may have had one of the lowest budgets of the Star Treks uh, because it's it's uh, about time travel and so forth. Um, when they relaunched it, uh, the next generation, they probably thought, okay, well, this is going to be, this is going to be big. People love next generation on TV. They're going to love them in the movies. It, they did okay. They did fine. They didn't set, and, and a lot of the creative choices that, had kept them going on TV, just did not translate to the big screen. I think that was very specifically telling when you got to Insurrection. Uh, Because Generations had the big thing of Captain Kirk's in it, and they meet. And First Contact was, well, we got the Borg, and it felt like a real big uh, movie. It was a big deal. Insurrection just felt like an episode of the show. 
and you kind of went, oh, you know, they're 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 resting on their laurels. They're kind of coasting, and you could feel it. And that that I don't think Insurrection is as terrible as everyone says, but it is basically a glorified TV episode, just like the motion picture. And then you go all the way to 2009, and again they. You know, everything is being dug up. Like, we're in an era where IP rules, the branding rules. And Star Trek was, like, way ahead of that curve from the 70s. Like, that that's what the original motion picture was. It was them digging up IP in the 70s in a way that didn't become common until, you know, closer to the much closer to the modern era. Uh, but now, of course, things had come from a circle. They said, well, let's dig up the IP of Star Trek again. It hasn't been on the air in a few years, and when it was, people were in paying less and less attention to it. Um, so it, this will feel like a new a new era for Star Trek, and it'll be big, and we'll relaunch it with a new crew. And it, I mean, it ultimately, at least in the broad structure, I think the new movie was a very good idea, relaunching it with a new cast and, and giving it that Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, in-continuity reboot idea was really cool. Um, and it did okay. And that was the Abrams era Trek just sort of did okay and kept going. Uh, but and they still talk about making a fourth uh, movie in that Abrams series. I at this point I doubt they ever will. Even though supposedly Quentin Tarantino wants to make one, I don't know if that's ever going to happen or not. <laughs> I have my doubts. Uh, but um, there's certainly um, you know it it does okay. St the story of Star Trek commercially is it does okay. It's a reliable earner, but it's not going to be the next Star Wars. It's not going to be the next Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's not going to turn you into a Leviathan of Hollywood. It's just going to be a good mid-range earner as franchises go, which is, of course, never enough for capitalism these days. You always have to be bigger and bolder and make more and more money. But if people were willing to do it, they'd be like, okay, well, this is this is a... This is a good money earner. Let's just let it let let's just let it play out, and that's what it's been. And even when it went back, now I would argue that um, while it was, as you said, you know, Discovery happened because of the movies. It was the Rainmaker, uh, but I also think Discovery was somewhat creatively hampered by the kinds of decisions people were making in Hollywood. In particular, the fact that Discovery started off as a prequel to what was already a reboot. <laughs> of uh, the new show um, did hurt drag down Discovery a bit. And the fact that they've had to essentially retool the entire show so drastically to make it into something much more interesting uh, speaks to that, I think. Just picking up on your last point first, yeah, I think Disco has been consistently hampered by a really unwieldy premise, which I think is in large part driven by the fear that people aren't going to be interested un without ex more explicit ties to the original series. I think that everything involving Michael's relationship with Spock is something that the show feels shackled to and which it attempts to deal with as best as it can, but which is one part of an enormously complex concept that the show has done much better than moving away from um in terms of the abrams movies and their commercial success and their design next year as much time will have passed between the abrams move no I, i'll start from the beginning there were 13 years from the beginning of the original series and star trek the motion picture we will be at that point next year so if the Abrams movies come back next year, it will be as far from when the series began as the motion picture was was from the original series. And that speaks to a couple of things. One, given that all the actors look completely identical to how they did in 2009, it is a sign of how much better people age now than they did in the 1970s. <laughs> but it's also a sign that the Abrams movies have had a surprising degree of longevity because 13 years is a long time for a franchise, especially one that shows up intermittently in movies and especially given one that has attracted a somewhat divisive reaction from fans. I think that the 2009 Abrams movie is exceptionally well constructed. It's like Next Generation, it's a movie where I can admire the way in which it's constructed more than I can actually enjoy it because it's got a fairly point A to point B to point C sort of plot. 
but I think it does really, really well in buying off a number of different constituencies. You have nods to the original series. You take care to say we're not decanonizing it. We're simply saying that this is an alternate timeline, something Star Trek has done again and again. You have Leonard Nimoy showing up just enough so as to demonstrate that the past of the show is being taken seriously, but so that it's not completely monopolizing the show, as it eventually came to do on Enterprise. There's certainly nothing in... Um, the 2009 movie that's remotely comparable to Enterprise handing over its entire series finale to Next Generation. But at the same time, it's fundamentally a movie that is based upon selling Star Trek to new audiences, that it recognises it's being watched by people who've seen Star Trek before, but really trying to make this universe accessible to people who only understand it in the broadest outline. Now, the question is, is that actually a viable model for Star Trek as a as a long-term component i i'm not i don't think you could make an entire franchise in the model of the abrams movie i think there's ultimately not really enough substance in it the fact that it has had the longevity that it's had has been a mixture of people who like those movies but are also but also the broader star trek base but i think it is really really hard to imagine star trek so being in the good health that it is now without the 2009 Abrams movie, even given that its success was good for a Star Trek movie rather than good for a blockbuster movie in pure abstract terms. And all this ultimately returns to the question of who is Star Trek actually being made for? Is it being made <laughs> for a broader mass audience, people who, you know, will it get them off their tractors in Peoria, Illinois? Or is it being made for us, the people who make Star Trek podcasts and who are really, really intensely concerned with the precise ins and outs of twenty of the twenty two six hundred of the twenty third century? And I think the answer is ultimately that the two are in a symbiotic relationship. Star Trek can't survive purely as a blockbuster product because an enormous part of it, its appeal is its insularity, is that it provides that sense of community which comes from the level of detail involved. But it can't survive as a commercial product purely upon the people who are most devoted to the unique cerebral aspects of the franchise. Um, yeah, no, uh, I think, you know, it's funny, they they couldn't possibly have planned this, but it does feel like uh, if they had... This is probably a place where if they knew maybe a little more firmly what they were doing, they're still in a very good place. I'm not, sorry, that's, that sounds a little condescending. I think commercially speaking, uh, they're in potentially a, a really, really positive place where Star Trek right now, because if they wanted to make another movie and keep it as this main, like you can see that you can see the line of thinking that went into this. We'll make these big blockbuster movies start, that are reboots of the original cast that can be much more focused on a big budget action and whatever we feel like doing with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto smug, slugging people in the face. And we've got the TV shows simultaneously, which maybe appeal more to the the niche audience or just to people who are science fiction fans who want to see Star Trek doing weird quirky things that aren't going to make it onto uh, onto a mass audience. If they wanted to, now of course, the, the, like I say, I tend to think the, sh the movies are not coming back. Um, but if, but even then, the fact that they have all these different uh, TV shows does sort of indicate um, you could point to it as like, well, if we wanted to, we could turn Discovery into the big uh, blockbuster show, and we could keep uh, Lower Decks as the weird little quirky niche thing, or we, or maybe this Captain Pike show will be the weird niche thing, or whatever. I do feel like um, I'm not. I don't. I don't know what to think of the upcoming Captain Pike show. Uh, I feel like that's kind of treading old ground, but. Maybe it could be fun. It feels like a nostalgia romp rather than, and there's been enough nostalgia with Star Trek the last ten years. I think that's been the big problem with the Abrams uh, era more than anything is that they want to uh, leech off people's nostalgia for Star Trek rather than going forward, which is something that Star Trek did do successfully for many years. It kept saying, "Okay, let's whatever whatever you want to say about." even the worst of the Berman era Star Trek. They were at least going, okay, let's do 
another thing with it. Let's go to the next thing. Let's bring in new characters. Let's 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 uh, move forward and not just re rehash the past endlessly. Whereas Abrams is a little more likely to rehash the past uh, in their version, and um, I think that's uh, that's been something that's holding it back a little. Um, so I don't know what to think of that show. Uh, there's also the Section Thirty One show, which I th think we can all agree is a very dubious idea. I'm not going to say they couldn't possibly pull it off, but um, I think it's looking a little bit dodgy. But at the same time, the fact that those shows are maybe pulling away the stuff that I don't care about in Star Trek and keeping the shows that I do care about <laughs> free of that contamination, if you want to call it that, uh, might be a good thing as well. Uh, if I don't like the Section 31 show, I can just not watch it. And there's other Star Trek shows on the air. Um, so in that sense, there is, uh, there's a very positive, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a positive, uh, diversity that comes from having so many things on the air. And there's, as I just mentioned, a lot of potentially negative qualities as well. One thing I would say about, um, where you can maybe point to some cracks appearing in the commercialization of Star Trek is the fact that um, Star Trek Picard was very clearly written as a one-off miniseries that was going to end in Picard's death. Uh, I think that's very clear. And, I mean, it kind of does end in his death. And the fact that that's not what happened, and then they rewrote that somewhat nonsensically uh, and are now going for a second season, is due to the needs of commerce what could have been a lovely little elegy for Picard is now becoming another means to make money, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the version of Picard that you can see sort of peeking through the edges in which it's about Picard and Picard dies at the end is a far stronger show. And a lot of what didn't work about the show, I think, is attributable to the the need to create an ongoing an ongoing enterprise and as a result you see an a fair amount of water treading in terms of setting up things that really only work if this is intended as a long-term cast rather than the degree of focus that you would need if this was a one and done it is an i liked a lot about star trek picard um but it did feel all too often to be unfocused and really well and truly took its time in a way that arguably it wouldn't have if it had a clear and focused final destination in mind. I think that... I think that Star Trek... Like, uh, like you, I think that Star Trek is in good stead, and I think it is probably healthy for the franchise to have a couple of different flavours, and a couple of different flavours coming up because I think that makes it better as a commercial entity and I think that probably makes it better creatively as well that you don't need one show to be all things to all people if anything um, DS9 was probably strengthened by the fact that Voyager was on at the same time because it meant that you could go to DS9 for one flavour of Star Trek and you could go to Voyager for a more traditional take on the next generation formula I similarly think that Strange New Worlds sounds pretty regressive but if the intention behind Strange New Worlds is what it says on the title, this is the show where every week you can tune in to watch a set of likeable actors visit a new planet, romp around for a bit, and then go on to the next one, offering an extremely conservative brand of Star Trek, then A, there's probably an audience for that, and B, that potentially frees up room for other Star Trek shows to be more creative and experimental oh, that's a bit traditional, let Strange New Worlds do that, we can be our own thing. So, I, that said, we've, I think you, you mentioned that the most successful of the movies in pure dollar-for-dollar dollar terms is Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And I, I watched that as research for this series, again, having not watched it in years and years. It's an extremely amiable pleasant time at the movies that doesn't go anywhere particularly fast or in any particular direction it is very fun but it's fun in a an aimless watching on boxing day kind of way it is and i think it speaks to the fact that a blockbuster movie is not necessarily driven entirely by 
fisticuffs and explosions. It's possible to make a movie that is aimed for a mainstream audience that at the same time relies upon goodwill and upon a sense of likeable characters engaged in wacky adventures together. You could make a blockbuster that has comedy as its main focus. So when we speak about Star Trek as blockbuster or Star Trek as commercial success, we're not simply speaking of one particular model of doing that, which we see embodied in the 2009 Abrams movie. It Perhaps the better way for Star Trek to go forward is not to view uh, commercial success and uh, explosions as being synonymous with each other, but to explore new ways of finding commercial audiences outside a limited formula. Yeah, uh, one thing, I, we, sh- we should be wrapping it up here, but I actually did want to mention that one of the big ironies, I think, is uh, in terms of what's appealing to, to people, um, you know, for all that you might say, oh yeah, they're chasing uh, the, 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 the almighty dollar and they're not, uh, they're not thinking in terms of art or whatever, the question of what's going to make money has shifted uh, quite drastically over the years. And even from moment to moment, as we exist right now. Um, I think it's actually interesting that um, there's been, for a long time, and especially this is true in the the Berman era of Star Trek, um, that, um, oh, an upbeat narrative and heroic characters and warmth and community and uh, just, just you know, a, 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 a friendliness uh, that's more a- appealing to the mainstream, and that's more appealing to a casual audience, um, which is what you see in Star Trek: Next Generation. The fact that there were stakes and it was intense, and there were action episodes and so on. But even if even if there was a really darker episode or a more intense action-packed episode, next week we just go back to hanging out with the cast that we liked. Um, and I think more than almost anything else, I think that's actually what Voyager was trying to reproduce, uh, and which was frustrating because it went against their premise. They should be desperate at, at the far end of the galaxy. Everything should matter and t- immensely, and there shouldn't be this sort of, well, let's just go hang out with those wacky wacky funsters over on Voyager. Ironically, if anything, Deep Space Nine should have been the show where you're just hanging around with a with a gang of goofballs at Quarks, and that could have been the more lighthearted show, and Voyager could have been the more intense show. Uh, but, um, and and it's true that, as I think I mentioned, for a long time, I, you know, as a, as a viewer, as a nerdy viewing kid, I was like, oh, but I want, you know, that to pay off, and I want continuity, and I want to see what happens next week, and I want to see the characters build on that, and I want to see the Voyager crew have to make tough decisions about whether to get back, and I don't, I want a hole blown in the ship that isn't fixed magically next week, and that kind of thing. Um, and that's been, you know, again, at the time it was, oh, uh, partly again because of the whole syndication thing, it was a sense of, oh, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep things light and breezy and happy, and that's what the audience wants. And ironically, I feel like that has shifted a bit where Star Trek, if it tried to be kind of breezy and happy and, and fun and upbeat and heroic, um, that would be uncool. It would be in this crazy post 9 11 world we live in. It would be, uh, it wouldn't be, uh, edgy enough. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have that cool appeal to, to the cool kids who apparently make up the, the genre fan base these days. Uh, so that, that's the irony that Star Trek's been struggling against that and trying to be the edgy, cool, uh, somewhat darker show these days and to show that it's not this, uh, uh, warm and fuzzy show about, heroes and optimism so that it's now tried to reclaim that as something that's that's edgy (laughs) the fact that it's trying to be warm and fuzzy is the thing that makes it edgy and supposedly uncommercial even though that was the thing that made it commercial back in the day i I think it's a really good note to wrap it up on that ultimately star trek chases trends i think to a large extent while also having an enormous influence upon genre trends and it could well be that Star Trek was too late to catch up to the needs of genre TV in the 2000s and to adapt to the need for greater serialization, greater depth, greater darkness, and that the belated embrace of some of that on Discovery is precisely what turn, what's turning viewers off. And so 
if Star Trek has a danger in terms of its long-term commercial viability, it's that it's always fighting the last war, and that rather than necessarily attempting to respond to changes in genre in the way that it has in the last 20 years or so, what Star Trek ultimately needs to be is a um, trendsetter again, that it needs to be less concerned with mirroring or responding to changes in the genre as a whole and ultimately to plough its own furrow. And that is, I think, the last thing I've got to say on that. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I think we've, uh, we're have we coming to... Uh the end here uh i think next uh next time we're gonna talk about um uh star trek's uh development of uh the hist the history of the future and its view of history in general uh but for now we're gonna put a pin on it and say uh good night to all of you lovely people uh once again i'm adam prosser uh my pluggables are that i am on twitter at prankster 36 uh, i have a patreon uh, under the name Adam Prosser, with my cartoons and other stuff. And it also features my uh, my other podcast, What Mad Universe, which is at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe, uh, but also on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all those other uh, podcatcher things. And that's where uh, me and my friend Phil Bryce talk about uh, science fiction in general, the origins and development of... Uh, genre tropes, uh, basically, and the history of speculative fiction. Uh, so check that out. Um, and uh, so um, I think we're going to sign off now. So from me and Douglas, live long and prosper. And see you on the other side. <laughs>